0: Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv Podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in International Relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Jamie Shea. Jamie is a former NATO official. Jamie worked for 30 years for NATO, including as NATO's spokesperson during the war in Kosovo and also as Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges. Jamie is also Professor of Strategy and Security At the university of exeter in the united kingdom so thanks for joining me on the podcast today jamie
1: oh jessica thank you very much for inviting me on pleasure to be with you
0: we've just seen the conclusion of the nato summit and the declaration of a new strategic concept that outlines security challenges that nato will face in coming years mentions russia as a key security threat but also mentions China for the first time. I just wanted to start off with getting your brief response to that new security concept. Do you see that as a positive for NATO? going forward? Or what's your reaction, given your experience working for NATO yourself? What's
1: remarkable about the new strategic concept, first and foremost, of course, is a much bleaker description of Russia. Uh, When I uh, was responsible with others, of course, for drafting the previous strategic concept back in 2010, we still described Russia as a strategic partner of NATO. Uh, We recognized that Russia would often be a difficult partner, but we also thought in places like Afghanistan, dealing with piracy, dealing with non proliferation, that there would be plenty of scope for cooperation as well, we could have that sort of, uh, you know, defence plus dialogue type of relationship with uh, Russia that's gone now in this new strategic concept of 2022. Uh, Russia is described as the most significant and direct threat to NATO, there's little talk about the possibilities of dialogue and or cooperation. It, it sounds much more like a sort of neo Cold War situation where we just have to face down Russia, uh, for as long as it takes in the hope that post-Putin, the regime will become more cooperative with with NATO. Um, And that, of course, is the background for all of the decisions that you saw at the Madrid summit in terms of reinforcing NATO's eastern flank and posture in central and eastern Europe. The the focus was very much on rebuilding a secure collective defence and on solidarity in in terms of the willingness of one ally to defend another uh, ally. This was balanced in a way with China, which, to be frank with you, Jessica, we didn't mention at all. Maybe that was a bad oversight mm-hmm. by us uh, in the previous 2010 strategic concept. But the language on China is much softer. China's not described as a threat, but as a systemic challenge to the uh, alliance, which implies that NATO is still looking at China mainly as a challenger uh, in the economic and, and tech areas. You know, the notions of influence, uh, You know, who owns sort of ports and critical infrastructure, and that kind of thing. Nonetheless, you know, NATO does point out that it's not very happy uh, about the way in which President Xi has backed Putin uh, in the war in Ukraine, particularly when it comes obviously to peddling the same narrative as Russia, that it's all the fault of NATO uh, and NATO uh, enlargement. And of course, China has not gone along uh, in imposing sanctions against Moscow. But, But NATO still clearly hopes to continue a policy with China that it won't hope to have with Russia, which is to say, on the one hand, vigilance and uh, pushback when you see things that you think are aggressive behavior, but keep the door open for dialogue and cooperation, for example, on climate change and security, which is a new uh, area for NATO, uh, dealing with the North Korean nuclear issue, uh, and so on. And, and so the question, I suppose, going forward is to what degree you know NATO will be able to successfully differentiate uh, its Russia and China policies, or to what extent, you know, uh, China and Russia coming closer together, NATO will increasingly see them as sort of manifestations of each other. Russia is China, China is Russia, and you consider them to be a sort of a pair of disruptors of the international community. But that's also, of course, going ahead. But this, this does beg the challenge, finally, in the strategic concept that if NATO is looking at Russia in the East, which is, of course, core business, collective defence, while also trying to uh, have some kind of policy towards China and partnering with the Indo-Pacific countries. You know, your your Prime Minister of Australia was there in Madrid, together with the New Zealand Prime Minister, uh, the uh, President of uh, South Korea, the Prime Minister of Japan. So if NATO wants to have a role in the Indo-Pacific, how does it bridge the two areas? Does it have the bandwidth the capacity to somehow form linkages so that you in the Indo-Pacific help us with our European security issues and somehow how we in Europe, in the NATO area, help you with your Indo-Pacific security issues. That The way in which those linkages are going to operate uh, wasn't really clarified in the strategic concept. And I think it's going to be NATO's challenge moving ahead.
0: Yeah, definitely a challenge. And the way that that Russia-China relationship evolves also seems very much a critical piece. I'm curious, in your years working at NATO, you must have seen the NATO-Russia relationship go through various phases and stages. And I'm wondering, did you ever expect to see the type of full-scale aggression from Russia that we're seeing right now with the full-scale invasion of Ukraine?
1: Well, not, not from the previous pattern of Russian behaviour, quite frankly. Mm. Uh, yes, indeed, I, I was there at the beginning of the NATO-Russia founding act in 1997 when we had that big breakthrough with the first ever sort of cooperative agreement between nato and russia the establishment in 2002 of the nato russia council Uh, i was for many years the chairman of the group uh, under the NATO Russia council that worked on terrorism issues and frankly Jessica you know there's no sort of vanity here i promise you but we our group was considered to be the most successful of all of them because we had the russians participating in the activities joint exercises to deal with terrorist incidents they put money into this program we you know we had great exchanges on how to protect the world cup football tournament uh, when it took place in uh, in russia and so on so we had uh, at least some good years where uh, we cooperated with Russia in Afghanistan. They they didn't like the Taliban any more than we did. And they provided uh, overflights and rail transport links. They helped us also with the training and equipping of the Afghan National Army. They participated in the counter Narcotics Program. We had periods also where they uh, participated uh, in uh, the activities against piracy in the Gulf of Aden, against terrorism in the Mediterranean. And my sense was sort of hopeful, like most NATO officials that gradually, you know, the areas of cooperation would grow and the areas of sort of post-Cold War sort of, you know, nostalgia or hostility in the sense of Russia not being happy with NATO enlargement and the way the Cold War had come to an end, that those elements would gradually fade away. You know, Russia would become less prickly and less sensitive about them. But to some degree, I think after 2008, if you were a serious Geopolitical analyst, you had to revise that opinion because uh, Russia uh, invading Georgia clearly to prevent it uh, coming into NATO. 2014 was the big wake-up call with the annexation of Crimea, and I suppose now you get many uh, experts as well as diplomats saying, "Oh my God, you know, we should have taken 2014 more seriously. You know, imposed much more draconian sanctions on Russia, not kept business as usual going, particularly you know with economic relations." The political dialogue. We should have started to reduce our dependency on Russian gas and oil you know, then, not now. Uh, and we should have started to look more seriously about arming and equipping Ukraine for deterrence purposes. So uh, looking back, of course, all of the warning signs were there. But when you were living it at the time, you know, Russia being such an important entity, there was still hope that you, know, you could keep the cooperation side open. And uh, as I said, over time, uh, Russia would also see the advantages of cooperating with NATO, and you could build a more dependent, trusting relationship. You know, you always get the dealers and the squeezers, right? And uh, now the squeezers, of course, are in the have the upper hand. But at the time, the dealers, I think, still made you know, quite powerful arguments for keeping the, the dialogue going.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's always easy to see the signs in retrospect. But at the time, maybe it feels as though things could actually evolve along different trajectories. Something else that was confirmed at this NATO summit was the inclusion of Sweden and Finland in NATO, which is a pretty big deal. Would you, during your time, did you expect that at some stage Sweden or Finland would actually join NATO or did that seem like something that was really just so far outside the realm of any future possibility? And how big of a deal is that for NATO?
1: Yes again an uh, excellent question uh, after 2014 uh, when russia annexed crimea put its troops into the donbass and you know, nato had to start thinking about going back to collective defence and frankly you know relations with russia became much more fraught even if the nato russia council still continued to meet but the atmosphere was much cooler and much more confrontational then i thought yes there, there could be a big a sea change uh, not so much in sweden which has been a neutral country uh, since the 18th century and where you know, support for joining NATO was very, very low, but more in Finland, where the opinion polls, you know, started to creep upwards uh, and political sentiment in the major parties vis-a-vis NATO started to creep upwards, you know, vis-a-vis where it had been historically. So Finland was always more enthusiastic than Sweden, arguably, of course, you know, having a border with Russia and being more in the front line. So I thought it it could happen. Uh, I knew that, you know, Finns would need... uh, and like the Swedes, you know, a majority of public opinion before they would dare, you know, to cross the Rubicon into NATO. And of course, the, the real issue in both countries was the Social Democrat parties, which have been dominant in politi- politics since the end of World War Two, and which have been, of course, the most uh, wedded you know, to neutrality and then non-alignment as they redesignated it after Sweden and Finland joined the European Union. So it was at the back of my mind. But on the other hand, I didn't see them moving quickly because they were in a very comfortable situation. They had a bit of security from their EU membership. Getting into the details, you do the articles 42.7 and 222 of the EU Lisbon Treaty, which uh, looks at collective solidarity among EU members. They had a little bit of security from their uh, cooperation with the Nordic uh, partnerships, you know, with their Scandinavian brothers, the Norwegians, the Danes in particular. Uh, the UK became, after Brexit, also increasingly associated with that Northern sort of security framework. They had a little bit of bilateral cooperation because they were obviously working closely together. Uh, And then they had a little bit of security from NATO. Not security guarantee, but they were very deeply enmeshed in NATO affairs. In fact, to be frank, when I was at NATO, by the time I left, you know, we we actually thought that Sweden and Finland were allies in everything but name because they seemed to sort of turn up at every meeting. They were in Afghanistan with NATO. They were in the Balkans. They were in the NATO uh, response force. They were in every NATO exercise. You know, they'd sort of pushed it in terms of maximum maximum integration, short of the. the legally binding security guarantee. So I always thought that, you know, by doing that, they get they had the option of NATO membership open. And if they did decide to join, because they'd already done all of the homework that most countries only start doing after they've applied to join NATO, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they could sort of get in more or less overnight. So in other words, they'd sort of prepared the ground, but without pushing the red button saying, you know, we want to mm-hmm. join. So on the one hand, yes, I thought for, for both of them, you know, this was a very, very Comfortable situation to be in. We're non aligned, but at the same time, you know, we have all of this protection from all of these partnerships. But the problem that, that I always pointed out to them when I met with uh, Finnish and Swedish diplomats was that, you know, look, guys, this is, sounds all very well huh? a bit from here, a bit from there, a bit from there. But when push comes to shove, be aware NATO does not defend partners. As much as we may love you, as much as you helped us in Afghanistan, don't expect to be defended if you're not members, you're either in or you're out. And that was the brutal reality, of course, that they discovered after February the 24th, when Putin invaded uh, Ukraine, Ukraine was also a very closely enmeshed value partner of NATO. Ukraine had also participated in our operations in Afghanistan, but but Helsinki and Stockholm, they saw quite clearly and soberly that that did not mean that NATO would come to the assistance of Ukraine. So if you want security, you have to be on the inside. It's a very simple, but very, Brutal lesson. And that has been, of course, the shock that suddenly has turned the public opinion situation around and uh, enabled them now to uh, apply for NATO membership.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you still see that as symbolically significant and important, despite the fact that there were already close working relationships and, in some ways, almost like part of NATO in all but name, that Sweden and Finland have decided to actually officially become members of NATO?
1: Yeah, no, I do, uh, because obviously the political context is key here. You know, Putin started out the war in Ukraine saying, I'm going to stop NATO enlargement. That's what it's all about. Although, of course, he was thinking of Ukraine not joining NATO. And then, you know, five months later, Sweden and Finland, two you know, big European states, at least geographically, uh, apply for NATO membership and two states on Russia's borders, which means that instead of NATO receding, uh, NATO comes closer. Because, you know, Putin's whole uh, objective at the beginning, you you know, when he came up with these kind of new conditions for a European security arrangement, was to push NATO back. You know, he said American nuclear weapons out of Europe, uh, no NATO troops on the territories of the new member states. You know, back to West Germany, back to where you were during the Cold War, which would have meant that NATO would have had to take away the de facto security guarantees from half of its membership. And now the opposite has happened. He's got you know a bigger NATO closer uh, to his uh, borders, the biggest NATO ever, 32 countries instead of uh, 30. Secondly, Mm -hmm. uh, from a NATO perspective, of course, having Sweden and Finland in uh, makes it easier to defend the Baltic states. Uh, this, This was To be frank with you, Jessica, a bit of a headache for NATO after 2014, because there was only this sort of 60-kilometer corridor in the so-called Suwaki Gap that allowed NATO through Poland to access Lithuania. And and so now, of course, with uh, Sweden and Finland in, NATO has uh, much more control over the Baltic Sea, much greater ability to uh, reinforce uh, Poland and the Baltic states in a conflict situation. So from a military Mm -hmm. point of view... It does make life a lot easier. I think the third thing, and to be perfectly frank, as I'm always trying to be in these podcasts, Mm. is that some of the countries that joined NATO recently great to have them, you know, but Montenegro, North Macedonia, Albania uh, were small, are small, small populations. They don't have a lot of military capability to bring into the alliance. But in the case of Finland, with five armoured brigades, uh, a very mm-hmm. professional reserve, call-up force of 200,000, you know, a good tradition of taking your territorial defence seriously. You know, the Finns kept their tanks and their howitzers at the end of the Cold War, where most other NATO countries you know, sold them off uh, and are now desperately trying to, to build them again, given the new situation. So these two countries, for the first time with a NATO enlargement for several decades, frankly, you know, do bring in serious military capability uh, into the uh, alliance. And, and finally, simply, you know, having these two countries, which are good democracies, you know, coming into NATO, I think does a lot for NATO's image and legitimacy. You know, if two impeccable UN members, big UN peacekeepers, you know, <laughs> countries like Sweden and Finland think NATO is a good thing, then maybe it is a good thing. I think in you know, coming uh, from a Brussels perspective, because I'm speaking to you from Brussels today, it also means that there's more coherence in terms of membership between NATO and the EU. And in Brussels, I often say to my NATO friends, what about Sweden and Finland? And they say, ah, this is going to give NATO more influence in the EU. And then I go downtown to speak to my mm. EU friends, I ask them the same question. And I say, aha, this is going to give the EU more influence in NATO. <laughs> but no, I, I can't honestly, from a NATO perspective, think of any negatives that are going to uh, arise from Finland and Sweden are joining the alliance.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how there's been, on the one hand, praise of how NATO has responded coherently since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. On the other hand, there's been criticism saying, oh, NATO hasn't done enough or they could have done more. How have you been observing and evaluating NATO's response to this full-scale invasion of Ukraine, even though obviously as you said, Ukraine is not a NATO member, which you know becomes very important when we're looking at full-scale violent conflict.
1: Yeah, again, good question. I, I mean, I think that you know NATO took an early decision back in February when Russia uh, began its sort of invasion and build-up. That NATO, as NATO, would not intervene directly. All, all allies agree to this, by the way. Uh, I don't really see any individual ally even the the hawks, you know, like Boris Johnson, prime minister of my country, you know, calling for, you know, NATO troops to be sent to uh, Ukraine and, to turn it into a war against NATO and Russia. Um, and the United States really has very firmly ruled out uh, any US boots on the ground. So if you don't have US boots on the ground, frankly, given the role the US plays in NATO, you can't really have any kind of serious NATO operation. The Europeans would never do it without the United States. So there's a, a consensus on this, and therefore it's simply a political reality, and I don't think it's going to change. Nobody wants to escalate dangerously now that's not to say, by the way, that NATO has just sort of you know, sat back with totally different. Yeah, of course not. Ukraine is a valuable partner. And at the NATO summit in Madrid, there was talk of, you know, NATO helping out more with training. Outside Ukraine, uh, you know, with cyber defense, I, I mentioned I used to handle cyber defense, and NATO as NATO has done a lot in terms of intelligence and helping Ukraine uh, to anticipate and to uh, counter Russian cyber attacks. Uh, there's probably a kind of secret war here that a, a good academic historian uh, will want to write. You know, after the war, when a lot of these sort of cover below the radar screen type of activities have become more widely known, and the decision therefore was taken that it was not NATO, but NATO member states, as part of an informal ad hoc coalition of the willing, would supply the weapons. And this has not gone off to a bad start, the Lloyd Austin, the US Secretary of Defense has founded this uh, Ukraine contact group, 50 countries are now part of it. And believe me, believe it or not, it met at NATO headquarters, just uh, over two weeks ago for its third meeting, it kicked kicked off at Ramstein, uh, the American air air base in Germany. and in a way you know having 50 countries willing to supply weapons to Ukraine as part of the coalition is better than having just you know 30 at the moment mm. NATO countries you saw in Madrid that Boris Johnson announced a billion pounds worth of UK armaments for a country like the UK that's a quite a big big allocation Biden announced another 800 Million dollars worth. Uh, last week it was a bit of uh, four hundred million. The week before it was a billion. Uh, mm-hmm. You know th- these are considerable sums. Uh, and other NATO allies, albeit maybe from a slow start like Germany, are now stepping it up. But of course the issue for the Ukrainians is to get the weapons quickly while they can still use them against the Russians in the Donbass. Mm-hmm. Um, a- and to make sure that the flow continues. You know, given the attrition rate, Ukraine defense minister said week or so ago that they were using up 6,000 shells every day. So you can imagine the kind of replenishment rate that you have to keep up and the the financial envelope when you have to sort of, you know, supply that amount of ordnance virtually every day.
0: Mm -hmm. And finally, do you think there is a possibility that Putin would actually militarily attack a NATO country? I mean, I never would have thought he would engage a full-scale invasion against Ukraine. It seems to me completely crazy that he would attack a NATO member country. But do you think that is there is even sort of a possibility that that could occur?
1: That is probably the most difficult question because clearly it's very difficult to know what's going on inside Putin's mind. Clearly, unlike the Soviet Union, this is not a country, Russia today, where there's any kind of collective uh, decision-making that intelligence agencies sort of can get inside of and sort of figure out, yeah, he thinks that, she thinks that, Uh, you know, it's all very much under the control of Putin. And uh, we are dealing with somebody who is quite incalculable, quite reckless. Um, And his rhetoric also, isn't very reassuring you know, when a couple of you know days ago, he compared himself to Peter the Great, you know, he wants to be a czar and you know, he like Peter the Great wants to recover the ancestral Russian lands that Peter captured from Sweden in the 18th century in the Baltic states. So from a NATO point of view, you can't simply dismiss this as, uh, as posturing. You know, Putin has shown that he's willing to gamble. He's willing to use force. And even when it is immensely damaging to Russia's national interests, it doesn't matter. He just doubles down and continues to use force. So uh, war, which was maybe unthinkable, yes, a decade or so ago, is no longer unthinkable. And so Mm -hmm. NATO, you know, whatever the probability is from one day to the next, has to take that into account and has to plug its vulnerabilities, which is what obviously happened in Madrid with the increase in deployments uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, I think personally that providing NATO gets on with this quickly and that those reinforcements uh, are put in place over the the next 12 months, there's little, little possibility that Putin Mm. will attack a NATO member state. He can see, you know, that the willingness and the ability to defend those two important things, willingness and capacity are both there. But what I think is going to happen is Putin will do what he always does. He will look for other tactics, what NATO calls hybrid war, which he, he does very well you know the influence campaigns the uh, the cyber attacks you know the, the use of chemical weapons like in the UK with Novichok a few years back you know, attempts you know to uh, so discord uh, the very aggressive propaganda through Russian media outlets and all of that you know blaming all of the problems of the world you know hunger rising inflation energy prices on NATO you know not my invasion but the resistance to the invasion is to blame the, the Putin threat will not go away, but it will manifest itself in in other ways which NATO has to be prepared to counter. Mm
0: -hmm. Thanks, Jamie. I really appreciate you sharing your reflections and insights with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the conversation.
1: A, A pleasure for me too. And thanks again for inviting me. All the best to you.
0: Thanks for listening and thanks to Mr Smith for our theme music.